The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. This is Jacob Yasha Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. I would like to introduce our editorial board member, Dr. David Kaufman, the Chief of Critical Care at Bridgeport Hospital, a teaching hospital affiliated with Yale University. His interests include sepsis, acute lung injury, and septic shock. Welcome, Dr. Kaufman. Thanks, Yasha. Today on Blue Journal Podcasts, we are discussing the article, Vitamin D Levels and Risk of Acute Exacerbations of Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease, a Prospective Cohort Study, which appeared in the February 1, 2012 edition of the Blue Journal. We are going to be joined by Dr. Ken Kunasaki, a staff physician in pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine at the Minneapolis VA Healthcare System. He is also an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota. He has a research interest in vitamin D in patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and he is the first author of the paper we are discussing today. We are joined also by Dr. Clifford J. Rosen. Dr. Rosen is the Director of Clinical and Translational Research and a senior scientist at Maine Medical Center Research Institute. His other current positions include adjunct staff scientist at the Jackson Laboratory and professor of medicine at Tufts University School of Medicine. He is the founder and former director of the Maine Center for Osteoporosis Research and Education. He was the first editor-in-chief of the Journal of Clinical Densitometry, and he is the editor-in-chief currently of the Primer in Metabolic Bone Diseases. And he just began a term as associate editor for the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. He has overseen numerous phase two and three clinical trials, and he is acknowledged as a world expert in vitamin D and bone health. Thank you, gentlemen. Dr. Kunisaki, in the introduction to your paper, you refer to a growing body of evidence for vitamin D and mounting appropriate, innate, and adaptive immune responses to infections. Could you please summarize this evidence and tell us a little bit about the biological rationale for the investigation that you and your colleagues undertook? Sure. So we were interested, as you mentioned, so things related to innate immunity, which is our frontline defense against things like bacterial and viral infections. And there's been an increasing body of data that vitamin D appears to play a role in inducing the production of things such as antimicrobial peptides. These are substances that help to kill off organisms, and these are related to pathways, things such as toll-like receptors, catholicidin, beta defensin 2, which have all been linked to vitamin D pathways. There are also data on the adaptive immunity side. These are things like T cells and B cells, showing that vitamin D appears to play a role in adaptive immunity as well in terms of recognizing infections and activating cellular killing of organisms. So these are mostly lab experiment data, and they were of interest to us because exacerbations of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, are more commonly felt to be triggered by infections. So we wondered if low vitamin D levels might increase the risk of respiratory infections and therefore potentially increase the risk of COPD exacerbations. Dr. Rosen, Dr. Kunisaki referred to data derived in large part from basic science or translational experiments that show a role of vitamin D in the immune response. How applicable is this evidence to clinical situations? 
We have been reviewing that data set, and we agree that the basic application is there. There is evidence that capocetin is induced by vitamin D, that macrophages express the vitamin D receptor, particularly in response to certain signals, such as innate factors. But there have not been enough clinical trials to date to test whether this is applicable on a large scale to populations. The only trials really have been related to the autoimmunity that occurs with type 1 diabetes where there have been a few trials. And again, that is not innate immunity. And in respect to TB, the original observations about the toll-like receptor and the induction of capocetin were really observations, but never on a clinical trial basis. So I would say there's significant biologic plausibility to test these hypotheses, one of the things that was done in this paper, but we don't have the clinical trial data to be able to extend that to clinical practice at the present time. Dr. Kunasaki, your investigation tested the hypothesis that low plasma vitamin D levels are a risk factor for acute exacerbations of COPD. Could you tell us a little bit about your data set and the analysis that you used to examine this hypothesis? So we conducted a secondary analysis of patients who were enrolled in an NHLBI-sponsored clinical trial of azithromycin to prevent exacerbations of COPD. The primary outcome of that original trial was acute exacerbations of COPD, so these events were carefully tracked over a time period of one year. We were then able to use stored blood samples from these patients, and we looked at analyzed baseline vitamin D levels and then the relationships between those levels and subsequent acute exacerbations of COPD over a one-year time frame. We ended up with 973 baseline samples, so we had a pretty decent size. This was a very severe COPD sample with a mean FEV1 of around 40% of predicted, and they had a lot of exacerbations. Among these 973 patients, there were 1,415 exacerbations. So we went into this with the hypothesis that low vitamin D levels at baseline would be associated with an increased risk of acute exacerbations of COPD. We analyzed this uh, with time-to-event analysis, uh, in other words, looking at low vitamin D levels being potentially associated with a faster time-to-first exacerbation, and then we also looked at frequency of exacerbation, in other words, testing the hypothesis that low vitamin D levels would also be associated with a higher frequency of COPD exacerbations. We adjusted in our analysis for things like season, which is relatively important in studies of vitamin D due to the seasonal variation in vitamin D levels. And then we also adjusted for other confounders that could potentially affect vitamin D levels and COPD exacerbation risk. These are factors such as age, ethnicity, gender, lung function, and smoking status. In our results, just looking at the vitamin D levels, we found that 35% of these patients had actually had normal vitamin D levels normal being defined as a, a level greater than or equal to 30 uh, nanograms per milliliter. So 35% were normal, 33% were insufficient, and 32% were deficient, deficiency being defined as a level less than 20 nanograms per milliliter. There were also a few patients who had severe deficiency, this being the level less than 10 nanograms per milliliter, and that was 8.4% of that sample. 
So we had a pretty good spread of vitamin D levels uh, across the sort of range of normal, insufficient, deficient. So then when looking at uh, exacerbation data, despite the spread of vitamin D levels, we found no association between vitamin D levels and either time to first exacerbation or the frequency of acute exacerbations of COPD. Dr. Rosen, an important aspect of this work is how it classified subjects by plasma vitamin D level. And Dr. Kunisaki just outlined how they defined insufficiency, deficiency, and severe deficiency in their study. This classification system has been examined in great detail recently, and I was hoping that you could tell us how valid you believe this classification is, and also perhaps shed some light on why you think vitamin D insufficiency or worse seems so prevalent, with 65% of the subjects enrolled in this study showing vitamin D insufficiency or worse. So let me just clarify that I think that the classification of vitamin D as sufficient, insufficient, deficient is rather subjective and has not been based on anything other than what guidelines have been promoted by different organizations. Our sense at the Institute of Medicine where we went through this is that we found that the mean vitamin D level in the American population, North American population, where it began in the United States, is in the range of 23 to 25 nanograms per ml. If you consider that the mean value, of course, you would suggest from that that many, many individuals would be deficient. But if you use 30 as a classification. But we found that there was little evidence to support a cutoff of 30 for insufficiency. In fact, we're not even sure that insufficiency is an appropriate term. We definitely agree that levels between 10 and 15 nanograms per ml are low and that require supplementation. At 16 nanograms per ml, the Institute of Medicine found that even half the population had normal levels of parathyroid hormone and could be considered sufficient. So even 20 nanograms per ml, which I personally consider a level that we could use as a potential cutoff for deficient versus sufficient, that even that point is relative. So I would argue that a lot of this was developed but without the evidence base. And when we went back at the Institute of Medicine, we found that 20 nanograms per ml clearly is a point at which the parathyroid hormone levels are not increased, and at which time you get maximum calcium absorption, and from the randomized clinical trials, that there's optimal skeletal health. So we targeted 20 as being a reasonable target. And if you do that, then the number of individuals that are deficient in the population really runs from 15 to 30%. So we feel, and I certainly do, that most people are not in a category that we should call insufficient, but rather at a level that the exposure is adequate to protect against skeletal health. Now, having said that, we certainly still have outstanding data that needs to be done in randomized trials to determine whether levels higher than that may be important for other disease states such as immune disorders and for infections and for other cardiovascular disease. But at the present time, the most supportive data are that 20 nanograms per ml is a sufficient level. And therefore, the percent of individuals that are significantly impaired in their vitamin D exposure 
it's probably somewhere in the range of 15 to 20 percent. I noted that in Dr. Kentucky's study, they only had about 8 to 10 percent that were below 10 nanograms per ml. And in the LEHOC study, the randomized trial done in Belgium, that was about 12 percent that were less than 10 nanograms. I think all of us would agree that at levels below 15 nanograms per ml, the risk of serious skeletal disorders, including fractures and osteomalacia, are much higher. And it remains to be seen after the LEHOC study in the Annals of Internal Medicine whether very low levels that are replaced with large amounts of vitamin D may in fact improve muscle function and or the risk of infections. So again, fall back to this issue of how much data do we have from randomized control trials. I should add that when we measure 25D, 25D is not a biomarker. It's a measure of vitamin D exposure. So I guess it would not be surprising to think about fairly sick individuals with COPD who don't get outside because sunlight exposure is certainly one of the predominant factors that affects serum 25-hydroxy or that they're not getting adequate intake of vitamin D either in supplemental form or in diet in which there is supplemental vitamin D added. So we find that people who have the lowest vitamin D tend to have greater risks for a number of disorders but this may be confounded by the many covariates that Dr. Kinsaki controlled for that we see in large populations. And again, the randomized control trial data will really ultimately determine where we stand in terms of risk for chronic diseases. So Dr. Kunisaki, I want to follow up what Dr. Rosen just said in two ways. One of the confounders that Dr. Rosen just identified is that a very low plasma vitamin D level may be a confounder in that it identifies a group of patients who have a very poor functional status and don't get out into the sunlight and absorb ultraviolet radiation or have impaired nutritional status. And I wonder whether that is something that you analyzed in your data and how you might address accounting for that potential confounder. Yeah, I think those are great points. You know, when we looked at our data and our results, we found no association between vitamin D levels and exacerbations of COPD, and we didn't see much. But even the previous observational data that sort of led to some of our studies, again, that patients with lower vitamin D levels might actually have an increased risk of respiratory infections. I think one of the big limitations of a lot of these data sets or that it just may be that vitamin D isn't actually the cause of the infections, that it may be that just a marker of worse functional status, for example. Uh, within our data set, we actually did have access to something called the St. George's Respiratory Questionnaire. It's a measure of respiratory health status. Um, and we actually did look at that uh, among our different vitamin D sort of levels. And so we sort of went by sort of just stratified things by 10 nanograms per deciliter in increments. We actually showed these data in our supplemental appendix. And what you'll see there is that actually the patients in the lowest vitamin D status also had the worst functional status in terms of respiratory health status in providing some indication perhaps, still observational data, but that perhaps 
the reasons for the low vitamin D level may be that these patients are so limited that they're not out in sunlight, they're not as active as the patients in the higher vitamin D levels, so that it could be in some ways that low vitamin D levels may just be a marker of more severe disease, more functional limitation, limited time outdoors. And Dr. Kunasaki, to follow up on one of the other points that Dr. Rosen mentioned, which is that our classification scheme for understanding levels of plasma vitamin D is based in large part on what is required to maintain good bone health may not be applicable to lung health or cardiovascular health or immune system health. And I wonder whether there might be a way of addressing where on the spectrum uh, a plasma vitamin D level might actually put an individual at risk for an exacerbation of COPD. Yes, yeah, so we're able to look at the data. Our analysis was able, we can only look at sort of where our patients are in the vitamin D blood level spectrum. And that's mostly sort of in that mean level in our population actually was 25, so not that much different than a general population of this age group. Again, looking at that spread within what we have as a spread, we didn't find much evidence. And I think you could hypothesize, for example, that maybe for immune-mediated sort of uh, benefits that in terms of prevention of exacerbations or other respiratory infections that you might need to push levels up substantially higher. I think that's certainly still possible, although I think we'll talk about a little bit about the Annals of Internal Medicine article that was also published. You know, in our data set, we just had a limited number of patients in that really high vitamin D level stratum, and ultimately, you really can only get there to those really high levels by supplementation. It's hard to get there endogenously, even with sun exposure, particularly in these elderly patients with COPD. So I think our data sets were just aren't able to address that question very well and would we'll really have to do an intervention trial to see whether there's any evidence of benefit perhaps at a much higher level of vitamin D. So Dr. Rosen, to follow up on your observation that the way we define adequate and inadequate plasma vitamin D levels is based largely on bone health, how do you think that we can define clinical vitamin D sufficiency and insufficiency correctly with respect to lung health or immune system health? Thanks for asking. I just want to reemphasize I agree with Dr. Kunisaki that it's hard to tell whether the D level is associated with the poor functional outcomes or poor functional outcomes bring along the low vitamin D level. But we sort of see the same thing with falls and falling causing fractures. And in that cohort, we've looked very closely at that. And I think that we see basically the same thing, that in meta-analysis of much larger randomized trials, Individuals at the very low level, below 10 nanograms, tend to be more responsive, much like the Annals article with COPD, they tend to be more responsive to a supplementation. And in that situation, we're talking about replacement therapy as much as we're talking about pharmacologic intervention. In respect to giving higher doses of vitamin D, I think that is the question and the threshold that we're all sort of asking. Is there a further threshold effect that occurs for lung infections or for muscle function, particularly in COPD patients where very low levels could affect respiratory muscle function, much like we found that the very low levels were associated with the greater risk of falling below 10 nanograms per mL. So that's very conceivable. 
I think the problem is we just don't have enough randomized controlled trial data to answer the question of whether a different threshold is required for different diseases. And let me give you just one example. I'll come back to the falls issue because in our analysis, we found a higher rate of frailty in individual elders who had levels less than 10 nanograms per ml. And this is common with cardiovascular disease, with other disorders, that the very low levels are a marker of something and probably their inability to move around and get out in sunlight. But the question that came up was, in the randomized trials, if we get to levels is there a threshold effect in which we prevent falls totally? And the question came up, is it 20 nanograms per ml or is it 30 nanograms per ml? And we did several analysis of meta-analyses of randomized controlled trial, and we could not find that there was a difference between 30 nanograms per ml reaching that level in a randomized trial and reaching a level of 20 nanograms per ml. And so at least for falls in muscle function, we would argue that yes, vitamin D is important, and yes, the very low levels are associated with greater risk, but there does not appear to be a higher threshold for falls than there were for fractures, for example. On the other hand, because we don't have enough data, we can't make that same statement about infections, we can't make that same statement about cardiovascular disease, we can't make that same statement about other chronic disorders such as diabetes. And those are the kind of questions that are going to be answered in very large randomized trials. For example, the VITAL trial, which is a randomized trial of 2,000 units of vitamin D, 20,000 individuals to look at cancer risk and cardiovascular risk, will help address that issue of whether higher dose supplementation may in fact lead to a threshold effect that allows for risk reduction for chronic diseases. Dr. Kunisaki, on a couple of occasions, we've mentioned the single-center randomized controlled trial that was conducted in Belgium that seemed to show an effect on exacerbation rates, but only in the group of patients that had a very low, less than 10 nanograms per milliliter plasma vitamin D concentration. So together with the results of that trial and your findings that were published in the Blue Journal, how could we understand vitamin D levels and COPD health, and what should clinical pulmonologists consider doing about vitamin D when they care for COPD patients, and in which patients, if any at all, should we consider supplementation? Yeah, thanks. So our data that we published in the Blue Journal were really observational. We sort of really admitted that only a randomized trial could really answer the question of does vitamin D supplementation reduce the risk of exacerbations of COPD. So the Belgians actually did just that. They conducted a single-center randomized controlled trial of 182 patients, and they were randomized to one of two arms. Uh, one arm got placebo for a year. The other arm got 100,000 international units of vitamin D dosed once a month with one year of follow-up. In these 182 patients, they had 468 exacerbations in patients with similarly severe COPD as in our study. They did the vitamin D supplementation, did work. It increased the vitamin D levels in the supplemented arm from 20 nanograms per milliliter up to 52 nanograms per milliliter. So they had a significant rise in vitamin D levels. 
But despite this, there was no difference in the time to first exacerbation, nor any difference in exacerbation rates. Now, as you alluded to, they did do a subgroup analysis looking at patients. This was a post hoc, uh, so after they had analyzed their primary data, they went back and looked at the group of patients with a baseline level that was less than 10. This turned out to be 16% of their population, so 30 patients of which 15 got vitamin D and 15 got placebo. And the vitamin D groups did their baseline level started out at 8 uh, nanograms per milliliter, went up to 50 with supplementation. And in that subgroup analysis, there was actually no difference in the time to first exacerbation, but there was a decrease in the rate of exacerbation. The relative risk here was 0.57 with a pretty wide confidence interval that was statistically significant, but I think the big caution here is that this was a subgroup analysis uh, done in a post hoc fashion, so we have to be very, very cautious about how to interpret those findings. So I think we can say is that overall, vitamin D supplementation had no effect on exacerbations, that in a subgroup analysis, there may have been a signal that patients less than 10 nanograms per milliliter might derive some benefit. But again, we have to keep in mind that this was a comparison of 15 patients versus 15 patients wasn't planned initially, and so we had to be really cautious about that and just say it's intriguing data that may lead to further investigations down the road. So I think their conclusions were really in line with our data that we didn't really show a relationship either between vitamin D levels and exacerbations nor in their trials supplementation and COPD exacerbations. So we conclude from sort of these two studies that vitamin D doesn't appear to affect acute exacerbation risk, at least in patients with severe COPD and the ones at the highest risk of these exacerbations. Now getting to the question of how do we use these data clinically, I think you know, it certainly appears that patients with COPD do have an increased risk of lower vitamin D levels. Again, as Dr. Rosen touched on, it's hard to know exactly what level to be concerned of. But even less than, sort of, if you take the cutoff of less than 20 nanograms per milliliter, maybe a third of our patients are in that category. But that's not a whole lot different than what we see in just the general population without COPD of a similar age group to our COPD patients. So whether or not it's actually COPD driving that or not isn't entirely clear. And I think that given the lack of data that vitamin D supplementation improves pulmonary outcomes in patients with COPD, I don't think there's much reason for pulmonologists to be checking vitamin D levels in their COPD patients. Now, there may be general medical reasons to check and or supplement. For example, patients with COPD do appear to be at a higher risk of osteoporosis. Um, that data has come out from sort of many other sort of different uh, data sets. But for those sort of guidelines, I personally would defer to osteoporosis guidelines and Institute of Medicine guidelines in those situations, mostly, again, because there's just a lack of evidence that there's a lung-specific benefit to vitamin D supplementation in patients with COPD. If either of you has anything to add, please let me know now. I think we tend to overtest for vitamin D. We tend to test much too frequently. On the other hand, a single baseline vitamin D level detecting very low levels may be important for the skeletal aspects. And again, we don't know for sure yet about the respiratory aspects other than this one subgroup. And of course, we have to be extremely careful about subgroup analyses. But having said that, at least if we're talking about the whole patient and the risk of fractures in osteoporotic 
individuals with COPD, excluding vitamin D deficiency at one time point, I think would be important, particularly if they're on glucocorticoids, which might antagonize the actions of vitamin D. So I would say from a bone health point of view, it's reasonable to consider a single measurement in chronic obstructive pulmonary disease with the idea that if the level is low, less than 15 nanograms per ml, for example, modest supplementation is certainly within the realm of good clinical practice. And whether it affects COPD exacerbations remains to be determined. It doesn't look like that is the case except in a very small subgroup. But from a skeletal point of view, it's certainly worthwhile to protect that individual. So when we see patients in the bone clinic from the pulmonologist, we're always looking for secondary causes. And very low levels of vitamin D, we certainly would act upon. And if it's a third that are less than 20 and probably a smaller percentage, maybe 12 to 15% less than 10, those are the individuals that certainly from a skeletal point of view we want to identify and we certainly want to replace them. Whether high-dose supplementation would be effective remains to be seen, although it seems unlikely based on the annual randomized trial. We certainly need a larger study to address that issue totally, but that would be my comfort level and something I would recommend. Follow-up vitamin D levels probably not necessary, and surprisingly, if the levels are low, 100 units of vitamin D will increase a person's vitamin D level, 25-hydroxy D level, about 1 nanogram per ml. So if they're 10 nanograms per ml, 1,000 units of vitamin D is certainly a reasonable recommendation and a safe recommendation in those individuals to get them to 20 nanograms per ml. Today, I spoke with Dr. Ken Kunisaki the first author of the article, Vitamin D Levels and Risk of Acute Exacerbations of COPD, which appeared in the February 1st, 2012 edition of the Blue Journal. And we also spoke with Dr. Cliff Rosen, a worldwide expert in vitamin D metabolism and bone health. We discussed the findings of this article, which found that vitamin D in the plasma did not seem to be associated with risk for exacerbations of COPD. And we also discussed the limitations of using our current classification scheme for determining what is a sufficient or insufficient level of vitamin D in the plasma. We also discussed the findings of another recent publication, High Doses of Vitamin D to Reduce Exacerbations in Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease, a randomized trial, which was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in January of 2012, Volume 156, page 105. Thank you for listening.